Hello and welcome to this special edition of The Long View. Uh, this is a, uh, a special episode uh, that I'm recording uh, as I get ready to record with Joel Eddy uh, next week as we're going to take a look at some game designers that we kind of think are the next kind of up-and-coming designers, the ones who are uh, maybe been around for a, a few years but uh, are just now kind of starting to hit their stride and really kind of come into their own or perhaps the most creative or best part of their work. Um, so what we wanted to do before we did that was take a look back at some of the uh, wonderful designers that uh, we have come to know and enjoy throughout uh, the years and uh, kind of give a nod uh, to them. Uh, this is by no means to suggest that they're done or that they have nothing more to offer. Uh, simply that, you know, these are kind of the designers that, uh, for me in particular, have been among my very favorites. And so... In the spirit of this top 10 list thing that everybody else seems to like to do, and uh, in the spirit of uh, the show that I'm going to be recording uh, with Joel, and to kind of go along with his list of his kind of top 10 designers of all time, I thought I would do mine. And then to kind of spice it up a little bit, uh, thanks to the folks at Tasty Minstrel Games, uh, I have a free copy of Harbor to give away to the uh, listener who posted in the guild thread and kind of correctly identified my top 10 uh, designers. So so, uh, without any further ado, let's get ourselves started. Number 10. So, my number 10 designer is Bruno Cathala. Uh, I, I have enjoyed quite a lot of Bruno's games over the years. Um, I'm thinking particularly of games like Shadows Over Camelot, uh, Mr. Jack, uh, Cleopatra and the Society of Architects, A Mission Red Planet. Uh, he's had a lot of games that I have really enjoyed. Uh, he also does sometimes work in tandem, I know, uh, with uh, other designers. Uh, but these are the kind of games that are still in my collection. I mean, I still have Shadows Over Camelot, and my family still enjoys playing them. Um, I still have have Mr. Jack. I think it's a brilliant uh, two-player game. Um, you know, this this is something that to me was kind of a revelation when I first played it. Uh, you know, this this wonderful deduction game, and the theme is is actually very strong to me, even though it's it's kind of an abstract game. Uh, but you have these individual powers of the different people who are in that section of London. You have the the puzzle of trying to figure out who Jack is. Um, that the sort of asymmetrical. Nature Nature of the play of the two sides, uh, the the moving of the lights, and Jack trying to slip out of uh, you know the, the quarter of the city, and I just find it to be a wonderful game. It's still one that I pull out. It's still one my kids pull out. Uh, it's just a game that I really enjoy. Um, other games of his, like Cleopatra and the Society of Architects. I mean, I love that game. Um, some of it, of course, has to do with the Days of Wonder production. Uh, it's just simply beautiful. You know, you're actually building these pieces, these monuments, these Egyptian monuments. The box is part of what you're building. Just really nifty stuff. Uh, wonderful components. Uh, lots of chrome. But the gameplay itself is also highly enjoyable. Uh, I absolutely adore and think that it is a a terribly underutilized mechanic. You know, the, the the aspiring designer in me really wants to try and see if somebody could do something with that great deck system that he has. Um, in this game, you're going to be drawing cards to try to collect resources that you're going to use to then build obelisks or build sphinxes or build different parts of, um, you know, this, this uh, uh, temple. And it's really kind of evocative and wonderful. There's also, you know, corruption. You know, you can kind of get some stuff on the black market 
market in a kind of a seedy way, um, which is going to be usually like double the resources, but you're going to have to take a little marker for corruption. And whoever used the most corrupt resources throughout the game is the automatic loser. I love that. But the deck part that I'm talking about, I absolutely adore it because you take half of the deck and you have it face up and the other half of the deck face down and you shuffle it. And so when you're looking to choose cards, at times the cards will be revealed to you, and at times the cards will be face down. And I just think that's the neatest thing. Like, that really geeked me out when I first saw it and thought, this is really clever, and it kind of builds some tension. You know, you have half known, half unknown information, and I really, really enjoy that. So, um, you know, these are the kind of little touches that he puts into his games that I really appreciate. Um, Shadows Over Camelot was one of the first kind of pure co-ops that I played. And I love the King Arthur theme. It comes through so strong. Uh, you know, it reminds me a little bit of, of Reiner Knizia's Lord of the Rings because there's such pressure. This is relentless pressure. Um, you know, you've got catapults outside the, the, the gates of Camelot. You've got a limited number of heroes desperately trying to complete these quests. Uh, all the while, you know, the Picts are invading, and, and it's like, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? And, you know, evil is encroaching, and Excalibur creeps further and further away. And so trying to kind of manage your resources, trying to help each other, trying to, you know, make good strategic decisions, let some things go, um, you know, a, a focus on other things. It's just wonderful tension in that game. And then add in the traitor. And that just jacks it up to a whole nother level. So this is a designer that I really enjoy. Uh, Mission Red Planet, I, you know, I don't own that one anymore. That is one that I did not keep in my collection, but I do remember finding it a wonderful punch-each-other-in-the-face kind of game, especially with that saboteur blowing up the rocket and sending the ship to other uh, locations of Mars. And it was a really neat take on area control and very interactive, very in-your-face, which was uh, different for Euro uh, kind of style games. So I really appreciate him as a designer. So uh, that's why Bruno Catala is my number 10 designer. Number nine. My number nine designer is kind of a sentimental choice for me. Uh, and I'm probably going to completely butcher the name. So I apologize in advance, which is uh, Klaus Jürgen Vrida. Um, this is the guy that made Carcassonne. And for me... He would never have needed to do anything else other than make Carcassonne for him to be probably in my top 10. And that's because that game has brought more fun and pleasure and joy and nights of just family together time. First, just my wife and I, and then our kids as they got older. This game is just wonderful. It is a blast to play, even to this day. I can pull it out, and people are willing to play it and want to play it. We enjoy it. It's creative. Uh, that that kind of map that you build as the landscape is revealed to you is just so so much fun. It's just it's just a joy to play. And and there's uh, tons of expansions. You can kind of pick and choose your experience, which I think is great. God knows there's been tons of spinoffs, Hunters and Gatherers, and um, all these other great, you know, uh, new kind of twists on the Carcassonne sort of engine. And I really, really appreciate this game. I appreciate its simplicity. 
I love the the I can teach this game to anybody. You know, you pick a tile, you play a tile. You know, you you either put a piece on it or you don't, and you try to complete your landscape features and you score your points and you see who won. It's just just a wonderful game, uh, and yet there's a there's a lot of hidden depth there uh, with the farmer scoring. There are real strategic choices that can be made. There are real tactical. Uh, decisions to be made as well. There are ways you can completely mess with people in this game. You can play it nice, you can play it mean, you can play it any way you want. And that's why I love Carcassonne just so very much. And uh, that's why there's a whole Longview episode dedicated to this one already. There's more, though. How about a game like Downfall to Pompeii? I can't even begin to tell you how much fun I've had with my kids as we chuck each other into the volcano. And of course... Dad gets chucked into the volcano more than anybody else. But I still love the game. I love the mechanics of it. I, I love the two-phase, part A, part B of that game, where in the beginning, you're kind of getting your pieces out onto the board, and then when that volcano goes off, everybody runs. And uh, the log jams and the way in which people have to run and that kind of whole live-together, die-alone uh, method of movement, um, you know, because you, you move as many spaces as there are people in the location when you go to move. And so it's got all sorts of interesting kind of tactical decisions when you play it. And it's just a lot of fun. I absolutely love that game too. That's Downfall of Pompeii. Another reason why he's in my top 10. Finally, there's a new favorite of mine from him that really took me by surprise a couple of years ago. I actually recorded a quick look episode about it. And that's the game Rapa Nui. This is a beautiful game to look at and a blast to play. Uh, it plays from two to four players. I adore it as a two-player game. think it's great with three. Four, it's a little swingy and crazy, but it's still a lot of fun. And it's got this kind of Easter Island kind of theme, and it's got a wonderful kind of a stock market thing to it where you have to contribute uh, items to kind of a pool that is going to determine what will be the most valuable thing at the end of the game. But every time you contribute that thing, you are giving up that thing, and so therefore you have to be really careful as to what it is and how much do you give away and how much do you need to keep. It kind of reminds me a little bit of, of Biblios in that way, you know? How much of each kind of color of card in Biblios do I need to keep in order to try to have a majority at the end? Uh, same kind of thing here. Um, uh, Steve Oxenic called it that, that sort of floating kind of, uh, um, that floating middle, that floating median, trying to kind of figure out where you need to be absolutely fascinating. And so for me, uh, this is a designer that will always be near and dear to my heart, if for no other reason than Carcassonne. But I felt really confident about putting him on the list because he also created other games that I really enjoy. And so that's why uh, Klaus-Jürgen Vried is my number nine. Number eight. Coming up now to my number eight designer. Uh, this was a bit of a surprise to me and, and one that I struggled with quite a bit, uh, honestly, if I'm honest with myself. And uh, this was close to being my number eight and close to not making it on the list, which sounds really odd. You would think that number 10 would be my one that would kind of be close to falling off the list. But for me, I really kind of struggled with this. But at the end, I kind of decided, you know what, no. I really do feel that this person deserves a spot on my list, and, and I'm going to put them there. And, and when I started looking at games, and the way I kind of ranked my 1 through 10 was kind of 
how likely am I to pull out these games? You know, the, the, the ones that I am most likely to want to pull out most often going to be near my top of my list, my number one, my number two. Uh, the ones that I, I'm going to pull out only occasionally, they're going to be closer to the bottom of my list, my number nine, my number ten. As much as I love Carcassonne and Downfall of Pompeii, for example, I don't play them as often as I used to. But I still love them, still think they're wonderful designs, and still think they deserve a spot. So at the end of the day, I decided that Rudriger Dorn really did deserve to be on my list, and that's why he is my number eight. One of my favorite early Euro experiences was playing the game of Goa. I, I love that game. I think the auctions that he uses in his designs are incredibly tense. And the way he utilizes spatial kind of movement and root building, I guess would be a better way to put it, kind of spatial root building in his auction games is a, a continued fascination for me. And it really starts with Goa, where the players actually kind of choose a path through a set of tiles that they're going to then auction off, which is going to help drive the entire game. Uh, the auctions are incredibly tense, and you don't know where people are going to go. And sometimes people are going to go in directions that you didn't want them to go into. Sometimes they do it unintentionally. Sometimes they do it intentionally. It all adds to this wonderful kind of delicious tension of the game Goa. There's never enough time to do all the things that you want to do. And the auctions are so important in this game that it, it just continues to be a game that gives me a lot of angst, but in a good way, a lot of tension, and a, a lot of kind of interaction. It, it's, it's not direct interaction, but boy, it's about as potent of indirect interaction as you can possibly get, especially with those auctions. So uh, Goa is, is a favorite of mine. Um, Jambo as a two-player game. Jambo is a really uh, wonderful design, incredibly difficult. You know, a lot of two-player games kind of seem like, uh, especially these card games that kind of came out at this time, were more pleasant. They were more laid back. And Jambo was much more difficult. And again, hallmarked for how, how in your face it was. You know, you can actually go after each other in this game. You can hurt each other in this game. And so uh, really difficult to kind of get an engine going and your, your investment versus your return and, and trying to kind of build something so that at the end of the game, you know, you've, you've managed to kind of wrangle the beast. You know, it really feels like you are struggling for control most of the game in Jambo, at least the games that I've played. Maybe I'm no good at it, but that's the way I feel about it. And so to me, it's a wonderful design that has really stood the test of time and a game that I continue to enjoy. Now, along with that, you have a game like uh, uh, Louis Fourteenth. This is a fascinating game, very abstract. You just have a, a grouping of tiles, and you know, you, you're kind of moving... Uh, amongst these tiles and bidding for these tiles. And it is a absolutely fantastic, tense, difficult, mean game. And, and a lot of Dorn's games are kind of mean. And I kind of like that because so many other games are, are kind of nice and they play nice and everybody kind of gets to do their own thing. And, and not in Louis XIV, boy. You are, you are in a knife fight in this tiny little space and uh, it is going to be difficult for you to manage and navigate. And it, it's just a, it's a wonderfully, again, tense. I keep finding this word tense coming up over and over when I describe his games. 
Then you have a game like uh, Arcadia. Another one, limited opportunities to score. How long do you hold off? When do you commit? Wonderful tension in that game, too. Plus, had beautiful pieces and just looked wonderful on the board as you build it. Reminds me a little bit of Medina in that way. So there's another uh, game from him that I really enjoy. Uh, and then finally, another kind of standout game, um, you know, to me from him was the recent uh, game Istanbul. Uh, here again, we have a kind of grid of tiles, and you are going to have to navigate your way through them. You have this kind of movement um, kind of aspect where you're picking up your, your assistants and moving and dropping them off as you go. And if you can plan that efficiently, if you can do well, uh, you're, you're going to win the game. But it's also a race game, and that's something a little refreshing you know, to me from, from him. Uh, there's definitely that race feel to it. And there's a few different ways and, and paths that you can kind of take for victory and, and things to think about and consider. And a lot, again, there's you know, a little bit of interaction there, too. There's blocking. Uh, you can send uh, people's pieces to prison. And you know, there's all kinds of different things you can do. A little bit nicer than what I've seen from him in the past, but still a game that I really enjoy and still is in my collection. So uh, for those games and, and for those reasons, that's why Rudger Gordorn is my number eight. Number seven. Coming in at number seven for me is kind of a designer by committee entry. Uh, and some people may consider this a cheat, um, but I, I, I'm going to stick with it. And, and that's the team of uh, Kramer and Ulrich and sometimes Kiesling. Um, the three of these designers work together to make some wonderful games that I still enjoy today and have a tremendous amount of respect for. And those are games like El Grande, Princes of Florence, and the whole Mask series like Tikal and Mahika, and uh, also uh, you know games like uh, Gula Gulo for kids and uh, El Capitan, another really kind of a nice kind of an auction game. Uh, another wonderful card game, Six Nymphed. All sorts of great things coming from uh, Wolfgang Kramer um, and, and Ulrich and Kiesling. All three of these uh, gentlemen have worked together on various games. Um, you know, for example, uh, whether it's the Mask series or something else. But uh, the, the three of them have been linked for a while, and that's kind of why I kind of put them together. Now, they're all under the heading of, of Wolfgang Kramer. Um, but... You know, you kind of have to give a nod to the the sort of partners because this has been a very fruitful kind of a partnership, uh, I think, in a lot of ways. So uh, we're going to kind of call number seven as Kramer, but it's it's kind of Kramer, Ulrich, and Kiesling all kind of thrown in there together. So what can I say about El Grande that hasn't been said before? Um, a lot. I haven't had a chance to do a, a long view episode about it yet, and, and I hope to someday because this was another early Euro game for me. I really lucked out, apparently. A lot of my early Euro games were wonderful. You know, I kind of later found out that I wasn't just, uh, you know, uh, messing around with uh, a bunch of second tier kind of games. I was, I was getting, you know, some of the best of the best. And uh, part of the, the thanks for that has to go to Board Game Geek because I found that early on and was kind of looking at the rankings, quite frankly. And so El Grande was very high in the rankings and rightfully so. This is uh, a absolute pinnacle of, of a kind of an area majority, area control game. And yet you have that Castillo, which is so vitally important. And that last little piece of slightly hidden information or obscured information, 
You have the cards that are just brutal um, to, to try to deal with, and the auctions for them are full of tension. The card system for the auctions, I absolutely adore. I, I think it's, it's a brilliant idea, that sort of finite set of kind of bidding cards that you're going to have to use and when do you use your best card when do you not um you know it's just there's so many different elements of this game that i could go on and on about but the fact of the matter remains when you're playing with four or five players it is hard to find a game that is better at what this game does than el grande uh, there's been a lot of games that have come after it, and there's been a lot of wonderful games that have come after it. You know, I think about games like Dominant Species. I think about games, uh, even though I only had the, the chance to play it once, of like King of Siam. Um, there's been a lot of good games like that, but, you know, people still talk about El Grande, and there's a reason for that, because it still stands up. It's a great game, and it's one that I truly enjoy and I will always have in my collection. In addition to that, you know, we have other games like Princes of Florence. I just recorded an episode about that with uh, Eric Brocious, and uh, th that's just a classic auction game. One of the things about that game that I absolutely love is the fact that, you know, you have 21 things you're going to do, and that's it. That's it. It's a pretty easy game to explain. It, the rule set is, is nice and simple, and yet... Boy, if you want to talk about tension, if you want to talk about agonizing decisions, those 21 decisions that you're going to make are pretty darn tough. And you have to adapt. And you have to have a plan. But you got to be willing to change it. And there's so many different kind of elements. And there's so much that depends on the players at the table and how they play and how well they know each other. And it almost becomes this sort of metagame on top of the game. And so to me, it's just a design that has really stood up. And I'm so grateful that after recording with Eric, I reacquired it and started playing it kind of exclusively four and five player. And I will never play it three player again. I'll never, ever, ever, ever do it. And I think that's why it originally kind of fallen out of favor with me. So maybe some of this ranking uh, for Princes of Florence uh, in particular is a little bit of a new bloom on the rose, but I don't think so. The game's been around for a long time. And I, I do remember enjoying it. I just remember thinking, eh, it was kind of meh, uh, but I was playing it with the same people, and I was playing a three-player, and it just it doesn't do well at that count. And now that I'm playing with a full complement or four, it really kind of shines. And so to me, that's a wonderful game. Uh, I also think about the, the Mask series, you know, uh, Tikal. That was the first game I ever played with action point allowance. And yeah, it can, it can grind your brain to a halt. And yes, it can inspire tremendous downtime as people try to figure out what is the best possible combinations of things that I could do to accomplish A, B, and C. It is incredibly tense. Uh, how can I increase the height of this pyramid uh, temple and then claim it before someone else slips in and, and, and grabs it from, from right out from under me, just as I was about to make my move? You know, how far am I going to explore? What am I going to invest in? Oh, my goodness, the decisions just go on and on and on. And, and, and you have, I, I used to use dimes and nickels. You know, we had a stack of 10 dimes for my wife and 10 nickels for me. We played this a lot two-player. And, you know, you just spend those coins, you know, just dropping them. And so when we'd play, the whole, you know, it'd be quiet. And all you'd hear is the, you know, the, the sound of the coins hitting the pile of other coins as we 
spent them trying to figure out what's the best thing to do. So the tension in that game, um, the, the, the brilliance of that kind of action point allowance, I don't know if it was the first, but my goodness, it really got me thinking as a person who enjoyed games, this whole notion of I can, I can have an internal economy of a game and set the price. And the more powerful the action is in game terms, I just make it more expensive. And I can cap it like a salary cap and say, you can't do more than this. And, and that's going to drive the decisions, and it's going to give players this feel of absolute control. And yet, they're operating under very strict and rigid kind of sets of restrictions. Absolutely love it. I think it's a brilliant design. So uh, then you follow that up with uh, Mexica or Mexica, whatever. I, I, I don't know. I, I call it Mexica. But uh, that game is just fantastic. And, and uh, the canal building and uh, how you can kind of swoop in and, and kind of punch each other in the nose in that game. It's a very aggressive game is, is that one. And so I really like that one. Uh, and it's a beautiful game to look at. Uh, the bits, the pieces, you know, those pyramids rise up. The canals get built. Um, it, it's, it's just a, a wonderful game. I never had the chance to play Java, though. I kind of am a little sad about that. But, um, you know, these are games that, you know, have stood the test of time for a reason. And I still enjoy them. I'll still sit down and play those games anytime that anybody wants to because I just think they still have a lot to offer. Then you look at a classic kids game like Gula Gula. I mean, how could you not have that uh, be a, a kind of a bellwether game when you talk about children's games? It's a wonderful game. And then you have Six Nymphed, just a, a fantastic quick card game. You take that anywhere. Um, it's been rethemed and redone so many times. There's a reason for that because it's a fun game and it's a great game. And it's a simple concept, but it plays out so well. So for all these reasons, uh, Wolfgang Kramer uh, is my number seven, uh, along with the kind of teaming of you know Ulrich and Kiesling, uh, depending on what the game is. But uh, that's why I feel they deserve a place in my top designers of all time. Number six. So my number six designer was a bit of a struggle for me as well. Seven and six were, were really kind of tough for me, as was eight. Um, th this kind of section of my lineup, if you want to think of it that way, was really tough for me. And I actually ended up swapping it out late. Um, and, and, and it took a lot of consideration for me because I'm not, I'm still not, I'm still not positive I did the right thing. But my number six is going to be Reiner Kinesia. Which is odd for me to say because the dude is like math the game. And there's a lot of Reiner Kinesia games that I absolutely detest. Like, I, I hate Lost Cities. I don't like that game at all. It's like, hmm, do I shoot myself in the foot by playing this card? Do I stab myself in the eye with a pencil by playing this card? Or perhaps do I punch myself in the nether regions in order to play this card? It's, it's a terrible set of choices. And I don't like it at all. I think it's a terrible, ah, I hate that game. I know people love it and think it's absolutely wonderful. And to me, it's like, how can I hurt myself the least game? And I, I don't know. It's, it's not my favorite. But you know what? The guy has produced a few games that I absolutely love and that I think are classics, and one of them is Tigris and Euphrates. I've done a whole episode about Tigris and Euphrates before. There's a reason for that. 
It's an incredibly strong game. It's a game that has an entirely unique scoring system, whereby you have four different categories of things that you're trying to kind of score. But whatever you do the worst in is what your score is. And so this is a simple and absolutely brilliant way to get players to pay attention to everything and to not simply find an advantage and twist it for all that it's worth. This is a game that forces you to pay attention to everything. It forces you to diversify, and it forces you to try to adapt a balanced strategy. In the meantime, even though it's a very abstract game, it has a lot of thematic elements to it. You kind of feel the rise and fall of your kingdom as it grows in size and wealth and influence and power. And yet the players have some control over when the game ends with the way the treasures come out. Um, there, there's a lot of variety in the game. Some would say too much uh, randomness in the tile draw, but to me, I think it's an absolutely inspiring design. It's clean. It's simple. There are some thematic connections there that are not readily apparent, but after you've played the game for a little bit, you'll see them. They're there. They're underneath. It's like a, the current. It's a strong current running underneath the game. The way conflicts work, internal conflicts, external conflicts. You can see the theme at work there. And yet it is a, a game that is not very difficult to teach. Um, it is incredibly difficult to master. Uh, it, it really is just a, a bellwether kind of design and something that I think is going to be around for a long, long time. I'm thrilled that it got a reprint and that it's going to be around for the next generation of game enthusiasts because this is a game that I think almost on its own is, is worthy of having him on my list. Now, added to that, I have a game like Medici. This is a, another auction game. It's kind of a classic Kinesia auction game. And it's, it's from a, a period of time with him. I did an episode, I believe, with Matt Thompson about this that was just really fertile. And he was coming out with just some fantastic games. And again, kind of abstract, kind of mathy, but the game just works, and it works beautifully. It is a wonderful example of how a table full of people can kind of set an entire economy and manipulate each other and negotiate and haggle and harass and threaten and all with just this this little set of cardboard bits and it's just a wonderful game um this is a game that you know just doesn't get old you can just play it over and over again uh, it also helps that it's one uh, of my wife's favorites as well so this is another reason why he's on my list and then finally you have Ra. And, you know, Ra is a game that I kind of had a, a little bit of a falling out with for a while um, and then played Ra, the dice game, because my wife loves dice games. And then I decided, yeah, okay, yeah, that's okay. And then I ended up playing Ra again, probably after recording the episode with Martin Griffiths, and, and started playing that. And I was like, no, I really prefer this to the dice game. And, and this, this game is, is really just, again, it's a brilliant design, really easy to understand, but difficult to figure out and difficult to determine sometimes what's the right thing to do. Do you go bargain hunting? Do you try to get the most tiles you can when you bid? Or do you just go and cherry pick for that one thing or those two things that you absolutely need to drive your score? There's different types of set collection in the game. There's long-term set collection. There's short-term set collection. There's some set collection that you will get bupkis for if you don't get uh, one particular thing, and that would be your Nile flooding tiles. There's all of these 
these different things going on. And it, it takes a little while to wrap your mind around it. But once you do, it's an incredibly rich game for such kind of minimalistic kind of components and, and kind of concepts. I mean, it, it just works so well. Uh, and for me, the hallmark of the game, of course, is the bidding mechanism, which are these bidding tiles that you get, these wonderful little sun tiles. And the fact that what I bid for, you know, what I bid with uh, is then going to kind of uh, go and pass on uh, to somebody else. So if I, you know, bid with a tile, um, that that now is gone from me and someone else might get that. And so I always have to consider, you know, uh, what, what am I going to get? Because when I bid, I'm replacing the sun tile uh, that I bid, if I win the bid, with the one that kind of is, is with my set. And so th there's all these decisions to be made about, okay, do I want to kind of spend this bid tile on this? Do I want to wait? Do I want to let everybody else kind of fight over stuff and then pick up what's left? But if I do that, I might draw a lot of raw tiles out and then get nothing. I could, I could end up with a whole lot of nothing for waiting too long. So, you know, he who hesitates is lost. So, you know, there's all of these different kinds of systems in the game that really make it something incredibly compelling. So... You know, he has put out a ton of games, and some of them I really enjoy, and some of them I absolutely despise. He's a really kind of hot and cold designer for me. The games of his that work, I love. The games of his that don't work for me, I hate. And so it was really tough for me to kind of, you know, decide whether or not I should put him on my list because of the person that he kind of bumped, and, and I'll tell you about that later. Um... It was really kind of a tough decision for me, but when I think about the body of work, when I think about the number of games that I do enjoy and how much I enjoy the ones that I enjoy, I kind of figured Reiner Knizia deserves a spot on my top 10 designer. So that's why he is my number six. Number five. Well, now we're coming to number five. So we're halfway home, people. Um, my number five designer um, is one that will probably not be a great surprise to too many people who know me, and that's Vlada Shavadl. So uh, Vlada has designed some fantastic games, some of which are, are my all-time favorites. Um, games like, you know, Through the Ages and Mage Knight. Oh, my goodness. Galaxy Trucker. What a game. Um, Space Alert, Prophecy, and, and uh, even games like recently like Pictomania. I mean, the, the guy did Bunny Bunny Moose Moose. I mean, just all of these games. And out of all of the designers, you know, I think about uh, people like Rudiger Dorn, and, and he kind of has this hallmark, you know, this thing that he does. And there's other designers on my list that have a thing, you know, something that is there, something that they do. And Vlada is very diverse, you know, the, the same guy that came up with Mage Knight and Through the Ages came up with Galaxy Trucker. I mean, how does that even happen? I mean, wh where does that come from? Where does that kind of creativity come from? I don't know, but I know that I like it. And so for me, uh, Vlada Shavadl is just a, a wonderful designer. Um, Through the Ages, I've done a whole show about it. It's a great game. And I really feel like I've built something by the time I'm done. I, I really kind of feel like I started out with nothing, and now I have this magnificent empire. And even though there's no map, even though it doesn't have that element, even though it doesn't have the direct dudes on a map fighting each other, it still has everything that I kind of feel I need in a civilization game. It is a micromanagement of your civilization game, and I'm fascinated by it every time I play. 
I, I just enjoy all of the different elements. I enjoy the march of time in the game. I enjoy the scope of the game. It's huge. I enjoy the play length. It's huge. I mean, this is, this is an event when you play this game. And so uh, that's one of the reasons why Through the Ages is one of my favorites. While we're talking about events, you got to talk about Mage Knight, right? This is a game that's also an event. It is incredibly long and difficult to learn and play, but my gosh, what a rewarding experience. It, it is as close to a role-playing game in a box that I think I've ever really had. Uh, I know you know a lot of people, uh, I've talked a lot about Pathfinder, and Pathfinder certainly has a lot of elements as you build your, your character deck and you kind of do that, but boy, when it comes to my recollections of D&D, tromping through the countryside, finding things to attack, uh, telling a story, building up in power, um, leveling up and, and getting more and more potent, more spells, more abilities. I just absolutely love this game. And it's an incredibly complex game. The rulebook could be better, I gotta tell you, but boy, what an enormously successful design and, and, and something that I continue to enjoy. I don't get to play it that often, I'll be honest with you, but when I do, absolutely adore it. That's Mage Knight, so, you know, another solid game. Galaxy Trucker. What can I say about that? That's just a wonderful game. That's a game I play with my family now. You know, they've gotten old enough that I play Galaxy Trucker, and we have just so much fun with it. This is a game that makes you laugh. So we go from games that hurt your head, games that require incredible concentration, games that encompass, you know, all of history, and then we get Galaxy Trucker. The rulebook is hilarious. The game is hilarious. The, the bits are funny. I mean, just looking at how your ship is put together, looking at your little spaceman pieces, uh, your little energy chiclets, I call them. You know, all of these things add up to this wonderful game. And then so you build the ship and then you watch it go and you kind of watch how your mission turns out in slow motion as you get hammered by this thing, by that thing. Whole chunks of your ship fly off into nowhere. Half your crew is captured by raiders. The other half are in a a section of the ship that got blasted off by an asteroid. It's just hilarious. And then you limp home with a small fragment of a shell of what was once this mighty ship and you sell your few pathetic resources that you managed to bring back and you know you come in last but you don't care. You don't care because the game is so much fun. This, this to me is just an amazing design. Again, and, and coming from the same mind, how does that even happen? I don't know. You know, Space Alert. Here's another one. Very innovative. Real-time game. I, I know that some of those have been done before, but this is one that really kind of stuck with me. You know, this is one that really was just an amazing kind of experience. Um, the notion of the soundtrack in particular was something that was really new because now we're interacting as players with something else. You know, instead of a, a sort of an AI run by cards or an AI run by... Um, you know, something, you know, a die or, or something of that nature. This is a, a version of an AI, if you want to think of it that way, that is being run, you know, electronically by your computer, or your smartphone, or, or what it, you know, whatever you had that soundtrack on. And it, it drove a lot of the game, of course, because it's, you know, you, you picked the soundtrack you were going to use based on the mission, based on the threat level you were looking for, all of these different things. And then the community itself, um, surrounding Space Alert, developed all kinds of 
of soundtracks and different types of soundtracks and different kinds of missions and uh, all kinds of challenges. And so in, in many ways, it was this interesting kind of sandbox. And then the way uh, Vlada used programmed movement in there uh, with your programming board and, you know, the, the chaos and the hilarity, once again, I mean, here you have a game that's really kind of a more serious game than Galaxy Trucker. It's kind of like Galaxy Trucker is like the almost like the family version, although, you know, don't mistake me. This, this is a game that is, is complicated enough. You're not just going to bust it out with anybody, right? But it's still kind of like a, a fun game, right? It's, it feels family friendly, right? And then you have Space Alert, which is kind of like the gamer's version of that, where you're, again, trying to survive. You're trying to survive a mission of a that length of time and the challenge here is in coordination right and can you get all the members of your team on the same page can you be where you need to be at the right time to do the right things in order to survive and it's just an absolutely fascinating kind of a concept really difficult to pull off and then sometimes when it doesn't happen it's hilarious you know you just kind of watch like someone hit the wrong button or you know someone goes to fire the missile but it wasn't loaded or someone goes to fire the cannon but they hadn't uh, charged it you know all of these kind of different things that can happen in the game that can, you know, rub some people the wrong way. You know, I think if you take it too seriously, but if you're if you're in it for that experience and, and to try to get better each time you do it and take it as a challenge, it's just a blast to play. And so, you know, Space Alert is another game that I, when I, you know, when I think of Vlada Shavadal, that's one I think of. Um, so many of his games come from so many different directions, you know, out of right field, out of left field, out of center field. They just come from everywhere, you know. His mind is is very, very creative uh, to me. You know, when I think of him as a designer, I think of creativity. And I think of complexity. And I think of kind of rewarding experiences and things that, that I'm, I'm thinking. I'm always thinking about his games after I'm done playing them. And so that's one of the reasons why he's in my top ten and why he's my number five. That's Vlada Shavadl. Number four. So my number four designer is not going to be a surprise to too many people, especially people who know me, and that's going to be Mac Gertz. Um, I have been a fan of Mac Gertz games for quite some time and uh, just continue to really appreciate his designs. Um, Antiki was probably one of the first Euro games that I had picked up in those early kind of classics. You know, I already talked about uh, El Grande and Carcassonne, and Antiki is actually traced all the way back to me for Scott Nicholson. Uh, it was one of the first videos I ever saw Scott Nicholson do, and it was all about uh, the game of Antiki, and it really made me want to buy it, and so I did. One of the things that I fell in love with about that game was the rondelle, uh, which which I think is kind of his hallmark as a designer, is this notion of the micro-turn and a game played on this round kind of turn, kind of order track where you select your actions by simply moving one of your, your little pieces, your pawn, um, you know, around and around in a circle on this rondelle, and that's going to determine the action that you take. And the actions are all very quick, they're all very simple. Uh, a Matt Gertz game, the the rulebook is incredibly short. We're only talking a couple of pages, two, maybe three, a very small little rulebook, lots of examples, always a little kind of a, a quick setup kind of a guide, and then tons of historical notes, which I absolutely love and geek out over because, you know, history is, is a real passion of mine. So I always love those details that he kind of packs into that. And yet the gameplay is really simple, very straightforward, very little downtime because, you, you know, you just kind of move your stone. You say, I'm going to 
to do this. And then your next turn comes around. I'm going to do this. And it literally takes probably, you know, anywhere from 10 seconds to 30 seconds, depending on how long you're actually thinking about it. So his games just have a wonderful flow to them and they're very fluid. And there's a a lot of kind of surprising depth to his games. And so this is a kind of an engine, an idea that he developed and he's used in in pretty much all of his games uh, for the most part, except for his latest one, Concordia, which kind of actually delves a little bit more into the idea of deck building and kind of making a a hand of cards almost like your personal rondel. But all of his games kind of have this hallmark of streamlined play, interesting decisions, um, quick, fascinating kind of games, and, you know, games that I really absolutely enjoy. So I started off with Antiki, loved that, because to me, it was the game Risk always wanted to be. You know, it wasn't just a dice fest. It was, there was strategy, there was thought. You know, if I was going to go in a, and try to take over a city, it was probably because it produced marble, and that was a resource that I was looking for, because I was going for a temple strategy or something like that. Um, I, I really kind of found uh, the, the way the game played and the combat system at the time I found very refreshing. You know, I kind of grew up with CRTs and lots of dice chucking, and I I was kind of looking at this game. I was like, wow, so it's just, hey, one for one, very simple, no real kind of uh, drama there, but at the same time, no uncertainty. You know, there, there was, I could kind of really think about it and kind of math it out. And I actually kind of liked that. Um, I've kind of since changed my mind a little bit about that kind of combat system. But at the time, it was very novel to me and very refreshing. And it was something that I really enjoyed. Um, so, you know, you take all that and, and, and you get this kind of wonderful kind of uh, empire sort of building experience. You have the famous uh, personages that you can kind of recruit as the game goes. You have a, a very basic technology tree that has very clear effects in uh, game terms. And I just really loved it. Um, it's still in my collection. It's still a game that I'll pull out and play. I, I still enjoy it. Um, And then I kind of moved on from there to other games of his, most notably games like Imperial. Uh, This is a game that I'm actually going to be recording an episode about relatively soon. Uh, I was fortunate to have someone reach out to me who wanted to talk about it. And, you know, Imperial just kind of, again, it kind of takes a, a very simple kind of engine, this rondelle, and turns it into this wonderfully com- complicated, uh, in, a, in, a, in a good way, kind of a game where you're trying to kind of time things correctly. Imperial's like all about timing and all about backstabbing and negotiation and positioning yourself. And the, the whole notion of I'm not a country, I'm kind of financing countries, and I have loyalty to no one but myself and my bottom line, and uh, I'm going to, you know, uh, build up a country just so that I can exploit it and pull all the cash out of it that I can. Um, It was a really unique take on kind of a world domination kind of a, a theme, and I'd been so used to growing up with military kind of conquest themes, and, you know, that's what it was all about, and here you're kind of behind the curtain, and you're you're sort of the people behind the scenes and uh, the, the financers and, you know, the people who profit, war profiteers. And it was just a totally different kind of a take on things. And I found it really, really fascinating. So this is a game that I still enjoy. 
Um, my wife absolutely adores Hamburgum. You know, um, that's a game that's not for everybody. Not everybody loves it, but I I happen to like it. Um, the way the shipping works in Hamburgum with your sort of your ghost ship that kind of pushes the other ships along. Uh, the, the little orange ship. Those of you who are familiar with the game will know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, it's just it's a really neat game. The way the guilds are built up in the cities and the kind of uh, way you're trying to string together some connections and bonuses for uh, for the end of the game. Uh, the way goods are shipped, the way the whole market works. Something else that Matt Gertz has done in several of his games, uh, like uh, this one, Hamburgum, and in Navigador and other games, he has a wonderful kind of a market system, this supply and demand market system that he's broken down into this really, really uh, elegant and simple to understand, and yet sometimes difficult to manage and wrangle uh, these these economies that he has built in his games. I just absolutely love them, especially in Navigador. Uh, that's just a fantastic system that he has there, where you're producing goods uh, in plantations and and you know colonies, and then you're refining them or you're you're turning them into products that you're then going to sell. And so, uh, you know, you can make money providing the raw materials, or you can make money uh, milling it and and. And producing the finished works. It's just wonderful stuff. So all of his games really seem to have little hooks like that. Uh, even a game like uh, The Princes of Machu Picchu, which is another one of my wife's favorites, not really mine, but I hang on to it because she enjoys it so much. Uh, that you know, has just this this interesting kind of rondelle where the board itself is a rondelle. And, you know, this notion of kind of trying to have two different endgame conditions, and you're not always entirely sure which one's going to happen. Are you going to successfully hide from the Spanish um, and get all of your kind of priest and priestess uh, uh, tiles uh, out and in possession of the players? Or are the Spanish going to come, in which case nothing else matters but how much gold you have, you know, that you can try to buy them off with or bribe them. And of course, we know uh, historically uh, that, that that didn't work out for the Incans either, unfortunately. Uh, you know, the ransom was paid and, and, and the king was killed anyway. Um, so really interesting, again, historical kind of tie-in there. Um, and, and I really enjoy the way that game plays, uh, even though it's not my personal favorite. So, you know, Matt Gertz is a designer that I kind of was uh, really enjoying and had a soft spot for, but I kind of was a little worried, okay, the, the Rondell thing, he's done it over and over and over. It's like, okay, I'm a little worried. Is is this really, it's okay to have a shtick. And, and we kind of talked about that. You know, Reiner Kinesia has his scoring thing. That's like his thing. And, and um, certain designers have certain hallmarks, right? However, I was beginning to, to worry a little bit about the Rondell. And then he comes out with Concordia. And... Concordia is such an interesting kind of take. Again, you're, you're sort of taking a, a deck building idea where you're you're accumulating cards, and as you accumulate cards, your rondelle kind of expands, right? So you still have this idea of I'm going to play a card and do this action. So it's it's still that kind of micro turn feel, but now you kind of have everything available to you. Whereas in his games, um, with the with the regular rondelle, you can only move on that rondelle one to three spaces without having to pay some sort of penalty if you want to try and move farther. Well, in Concordia, you can pretty much do whatever you want. But once you play a card, it's going to stay played until you kind of take a reset action, which is almost like a wasted turn, but it allows you to pick up all your cards again, right? So 
it's almost like playing a game where the, the entire rondelle is, is available to you at the start, um, and, and you're also expanding that rondelle. You're customizing it uh, as you go in, in, in almost the way that I believe Stefan Dora did in, in the game Milestones, you know, where you're kind of customizing your own rondelle as you play through the cards that you draft, you know, the cards that you acquire during the game. So this was, to me, like a real breath of fresh air for him, and it kind of showed me a different slant on his thing. You know, his his idea, his kind of core sort of design mechanic. And it's something that I really enjoyed, something that I found uh, really compelling. And I still have a lot of fun playing Concordia. You know, almost all of these games, actually all of them are still in my collection. Uh, uh, you know, there isn't a Matt Gertz game that I have moved along. And that's because... He's really one of my all-time favorite designers. And one of these days, I, I do need to try the newer re-implementation of Imperial, but I have such a, a, a soft spot for the original that I haven't really had the heart to, to kind of, uh, I don't know, like almost cheat on it by going with, you know, the newer, younger model. <laughs> it's, just like a, it's like, no, baby, I'm still going to be fine with you. <laughs> and I just keep on with my same old Imperial that I've always loved. And people keep telling me, oh, you should try this one. I'm like, nah, that's okay. Maybe one of these days someone will be able to pull me in. But for right now, I'm thrilled with all the Matt Gertz games that I have. And it's because of the micro turn. It's because of the... The care and thought that he puts into the historical notes, it's for the ease of gameplay, the ease of teaching, and yet the depth that's there for all of these reasons. That's why Matt Gertz is my number four designer of all time. Number three. So my number three designer is Uwe Rosenberg. Uh, this is uh, a little bit of a surprise to me, but uh, not really when I think about it, because one of my all-time favorite games is Lahav, And so because of my deep, deep affection for Lahav and, and what an incredible design that I think it is, uh, I really kind of had to have him high in my list. Add to that, you know, games like Caverna, Agricola, um, you know, but also little known games, you know, I, I mean, I think about games like Bonanza and I think about games like Mamma Mia, you know, wonderful little card games and, and great games that he's designed that were not kind of part of that Harvest trilogy. Um, I, I really just have enjoyed his games, the tension that his games create, um, in, in particular, with his kind of uh, uh, farming kind of games, you know, whether it's starting with Agricola and, and then you look at games like Lahav and Aura at Labora and um, Caverna and um, uh, what is it, uh, At the Gates of Loyang and all of these kind of games where there's this kind of pressure, you know. He's all about pressure to me, all of this kind of relentless pressure, whether it's filling the, the uh, uh, regular customer's orders and meeting their needs in the gates of Luyang, um, whether it is the, the relentless pressure of having to feed in Lahav and in Agricola. You know, this, this kind of hallmark of his is, I'm going to give you lots and lots of things that you really have to do if you want to do well. If you want to succeed, you have to do a bunch. I'm not going to give you anywhere near enough time to do it. I'm going to force you to do things 
and I'm going to constantly mess with you and derail your plans and see how you adapt and see what you do to try to compensate for that, right? And in the meantime, I'm going to be kind of, there's going to be this drumbeat behind you of like, you know, food, 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 you know, something is going to be there that is going to make you feel like, you know, my God, I'm never going to be able to get all this done. And it can be a little bit overwhelming at times. Like, that's why I really prefer Lahav to Agricola. You know, Agricola, I really respect. I enjoy it. I do play it. But sometimes the, the feeding part of it, you know, can just become overwhelming. You can feel like you're playing the entire game just to try to feed people. And, you know, that can sometimes get a little bit um, rub me a little bit the wrong way, which is probably why I gravitate towards games where that's not quite as big of a deal. You know, games like Lahav, where there's, you know, ways to kind of get around that. You can basically pay for food. Um, you know, other games like Caverna, where the, the feeding is a little bit kinder, a little bit gentler. It's, it's not quite as difficult to do as in other games. Um, and, you know, even with his, his new games, uh, Fields of Arl, which I, I absolutely really enjoy that game. It's like a sandbox. Like, there's no real clear indication of what I'm supposed to be doing, but there's lots of options and lots of kind of avenues for me to explore, which is, I think, another hallmark of his. And yet, at the end of the day, there's kind of certain things that I need to accomplish. There's certain kind of milestones that I need to pass. And so... I think that that's kind of an interesting uh, spot for him. It's an interesting place for him as a designer. And I think it's something that he, he really has explored in a lot of detail and a lot of depth and in a lot of very interesting and challenging ways, you know, things that are still fresh. I think about games like Agricola and Lahav and... You know, these are games that are never going to get old. I'm always going to be able to play these. I'm always going to find a challenge in them. They're, they're not ever going to be solved for me. And, you know, there's many, many reasons for that, whether it's all the cards in Agricola of the occupations and improvements, or whether it's the order of the buildings and the expansion buildings that are there and available in Lahav and how they come out and what the town builds every game. There's all these interesting things that are always kind of waiting around the corner for you, and you will never have the time time to do all of the things that you want to do. And so it makes for really interesting and really tense games. Uh, these are games that can feel a little punishing at times. You, you can kind of feel like a weight, um, but it, it's a it's it's a challenge. And if you can manage to get through it, you do have a, a definite kind of a feeling of accomplishment uh, with your cardboard world. You know, you, you really feel like you've done something. And so um, I really continue to find him to be a, a fascinating designer and, and one that I continue to, to follow and one that I want to follow. I also think there's a greater kind of a depth to his designs and, and his sort of body of work than a lot of people think about. You know, most people know him for the games that I've already been talking about, you know, Agricola and Fields of Arl and Aura at Labora, etc. But, you know, when I think about games like uh, uh, Mamma Mia, um, this has been a family favorite of mine for a long time. You know, this, uh, this, this wonderful game where you're making your pizza and you're trying to fulfill your recipes and you're trying to keep track of what's in that oven, that central pile, as you, as you are discarding ingredient cards to this central pile. And there's a little bit of a memory element in there, a little bit of a push your luck, but you can mitigate that kind of push your luck with cards that you kind of hold in your hand and reserve for at the end of the round when you kind of flip that oven over and you reveal what happens, right? Bonanza 
one of the most brilliant kind of ideas of, okay, we're going to play a card game, but you can't rearrange the order of the cards in your hand. And then the interactivity in that, you know, I think it's interesting because so many people kind of talk about, uh, well, you know, Rosenberg games really don't have direct interaction. You know, there's blocking and people can take what you want to do, but you can't really punch each other in the face. Well, you sure can in Bonanza. I mean, there's there's direct trading there. Uh, there's direct denial. There's all kinds of extortion that goes on and bargains. It's it's just a it's a wonderfully interactive game, and it's one that I think just kind of took that central core what if idea. What if you couldn't change the order of your cards? You know, what, what's the first thing you do when you draw a hand of cards? You you organize them. You kind of put them together like cards with like cards, or you know, you you, you arrange them in a certain way right well not in this game and so I, I kind of found that idea to be fascinating and and really worthy of of some attention here because you know a lot of people when they talk about Rosenberg they're going to talk about those games we've already mentioned but they're not going to talk as much about Bonanza and, and so I think it's important to kind of note that uh, I also want to talk about you know an, another little game of his um uh, Nottingham. Uh, that's a wonderful family game. It was an Uber play game. Uh, it was back in like the days of Tango when I could get like a case of them for $10. It wasn't, you know, it's not the highest rated game on BGG, but it had some really, um, interesting ideas, you know, where you kind of reveal a card from the center. So again, we're kind of working with a center deck there, almost like in Mamma Mia, right? And you reveal a card and that's going to be an action. And you can either take that card uh, for the action and use it against your fellow players or perhaps for yourself and your own benefit. Or you can say, I'm just going to take that to add to my collection because each card uh, is not only an action, but it also shows you a particular item. It could be pearls or gold or, you know, whatever. And so, you, you always have this interesting choice. And, and what to me was fascinating about it is that the choice that you have is on public display to everybody. You know, you flip that card up and you're like, all right, I'll take that for the pearls. And now everybody else at the table knows you have pearls. And it's like, well, I want pearls too because I'm trying to get a set of pearls so that I can turn them in for some buku points. And so there, there's this kind of wonderful um, open information kind of game in which there's going to be a lot of back and forth interaction and people kind of taking from each other. And sometimes it's just a random, you know, uh, I pick one from your hand and sometimes I get to look at your hand and take whatever I want and I can set traps for you and uh, try to impede you that way. And then when you try to go and turn in a set, well, guess what? You got ambushed and uh, now you can't turn those in for those points. And so there's all kinds of interaction in that game. And, and it's a game that I think of his that that's really overlooked. I don't know whether it's just because people didn't get it, whether I think it's better than it is, or whether people just kind of assumed, you know, it was so overprinted that like people are like, ah, you know, that can't be any good. I mean, they're they're selling on Tanga for nothing, but uh, not for nothing. I, I have given that game to many people, and everybody's reported enjoying it, and I still enjoy it. I still have it in my collection, and it's another one of his card games that I think is often kind of overlooked. So, you know, for all of these reasons, for the uh, really kind of uh, clever ideas that he has as a, as a designer um, for the the kind of challenge that he outlines for you in his games like Agricola and Lahav and, and all those others, um, for the pressure that he creates, for the tension that his games create. All of these are reasons why I think he's a fantastic designer and why Uwe Rosenberg is my number three. Number two. 
Well, now we're coming down to the top two. And uh, my number two designer is definitely not going to be a surprise to anybody who knows me and plays games with me. And that is, no, not him. This guy, Stefan Feld. Stefan Feld is is my number two designer for many, many reasons. Um, Most importantly, because of the decision space that he gives me in a game. Uh, I have heard so many things about, you know, Stefan Feld, you know, the theme is terrible. He doesn't really have any theme. It's point salad, point salad. Uh, everything is valuable. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And, you know, there's some truth to some of that. Um, but I think it also depends on what you like. And for me, I love having options. I really like uh, the opportunity to explore things. I, I like the challenge of not immediately kind of having a feel or an instinct for what I should be doing. I like that competition drives his games. You know, the fact that I, I can't just sort of settle on what I want to do. I have to kind of watch what others are doing. And what they're doing is going to be very important to what I'm doing. Not because we're directly interacting with each other. I, I understand that. You know, I'm, th- I'm looking at you, Castles of Burgundy. But from a competition standpoint, you know, if, if someone is going for a heavy kind of a farm animal strategy, you know, what do I do? Do I just allow them to do that? Well, maybe I do if my engine is better, you know. If I've got a Ferrari and, you know, you got a Ford, I'm okay with that, all right? That's not a big deal. But, you know, if, if you got a Maserati and I've got a Ferrari and say, well, you know, what, what do we got here, you know? Um, maybe I got to start thinking about counter drafting. Maybe I got to think about grabbing some tiles that I know you want. And uh, maybe we got to compete with each other, you know, in, in Bora Bora and that priest track, you know? I got to get some more priests in that temple because I can't just let you run away with that, you know? So not only do I have to kind of come up with my own ideas, but I also have to respond to yours. I have to, I have to watch your engine. I have to listen to it. I have to notice it. I have to kind of figure out what you're trying to do. And then I have to assess it. I have to kind of say, okay, Okay. Is that a threat? Is is what you're doing going to threaten me? Same thing with Macau, with shipping, you know? Okay, you know, I'm getting some goods, you're getting some goods. If we're both kind of in our own corners, okay, but wait a minute. Now I see you pick up one lousy stinking porcelain good. All right, I was going to get that. I want that. Oh boy, look at what you've got loaded now I think I know what your route's going to be, and your route's going to take you by porcelain before I can get to it, and darn it, you're going to sell that thing for seven. I have a bonus tile, which is going to double value. Oh, you better not do that. And so now all of a sudden I have to kind of say, okay, this person's a threat to me. And so now I have to kind of shift my gears. Okay, I, I better start moving my ship. I have to actually beat him, and I have to actually replan my route, because if I don't, uh, I could lose out there. Now, I know to a lot of people out there listening, they might think, well, God, that just sounds like really mathy and kind of boring. But to me, it's not. It's challenging. It's challenging from an assessment standpoint. Like, I have to be able to assess what the other players are doing and how effective I think they're going to be at what they're doing and how much I respect and or fear their plan all the while I'm trying to develop my own. And you know what? If they're good players, they're doing the exact same thing to me. They're looking at my engine. They're listening to me rev it. They're, they're kind of listening. They're, they're watching me build it. They're like, what, what is he doing over there? You know, I, I see that going over there. Eh, I'm not going to worry about that. And then all of a sudden, oh, holy shoot, I better, I better do something about it. So 
I really love that about his games. They're, you know, they're games where you have to evaluate. You know, there, there, there's a lot of evaluation that has to happen in Stefan Feld games, uh, regardless of what it is. I can kind of point to that. You know, in Amerigo, okay, you know. This guy's going for a small island strategy. You know, he's going to try to complete these little islands and get points early in the game when things are more valuable. I'm going long plan. I'm going here. But wait, no, he's scooping in. He's taking the goods out. I need those goods. What am I going to do? I got to respond to that. So there is often not a ton of direct interaction in Stefan Feld games, okay? But you are always having to watch what everybody else is doing. You have to if you want to win. I mean, you, you absolutely have to, whether it's uh, Trajan, Castles of Burgundy, no matter how solitarish you think it is on the surface, when you start playing, you are, are really totally aware of what everybody else is doing if you want to do well, because you can't let anybody kind of corner the market on anything. And you have to always be aware of what everybody else is doing, because if you're not careful... Uh, they're either going to undercut you, they're going to snatch something from you, they're going to be able to kind of maneuver, outmaneuver you, and then you're going to be left sitting there saying, what just happened? You know, like, I, I thought I was doing so great. That's one of the main reasons why I really love Stefan Feld. And, and so I've thrown a lot at people there, um, you know, and I, I appreciate you kind of uh, uh, bearing with me as I throw these titles out there. But if you've played his games, you kind of know what I'm talking about. Um, he has so many classic designs in, in his kind of modern uh, era here. I'm thinking of games like Trajan, and I'm thinking of games like Bora Bora um, with the dice placement mechanism. And, and boy, there's so much interaction in that, and, and it can be so mean. Um, he, he's, he's a bit of a mean designer at times. You know, uh, uh, This is one of the reasons why he's so fascinating to me. And uh, you know, uh, Joel and I did an entire show about Stefan Feld, just kind of looking at all of his games and looking at the different kind of periods that he had, the different kind of, uh, kind of stylistic kind of changes he's gone through, going all the way back to classic games like Notre Dame, where he had this kind of person drafting kind of engine that he built. Uh, he used that in the Year of the Dragon. He used that in Notre Dame and and the the tension that that creates and and the punishment you know uh in those two games and in Macau where literally you will be punished if you don't keep track of things if you don't if you don't control things uh the rats in Notre Dame if you don't control them you are going to pay um, in Macau, if you don't clear all of your contracts and, and build all your buildings and, and do everything you're supposed to do by the end of the game, you literally receive something called a punish marker. Um, so in the year of the dragon, you know, people are dying left and right. I mean, there, there's just all of this kind of, um, tension, uh, created in that way. So Rosenberg creates it with like food and with uh, tons of options, but uh, limited uh, opportunities, right? And Feld gives you almost unlimited opportunities, but you have to kind of be able to figure out which ones are going to drive you to victory. And so um, the, the, the choices can be extremely tough in his games as well, but for different reasons. And so, um, you know, when I think about Stefan Feld, you know, I think about all those classic games uh, that I've already talked about, but I also think about games uh, like Luna, very little known game, 
Uh, never really got huge distribution here in the States, but what an absolutely fascinating kind of game and, and the way movement is handled. That game is all about movement. This idea of moving by boat, where you're kind of going from island to island, or moving by wave, where you know whole messes of your people are going to be washed from one location to another. Just a really fascinating idea. Um, again, you know, is the theme really strong? Not really. It's kind of thin. Uh, I would argue it's a little stronger in Luna than in many of his games, but you know, it's not about that. It's about the mechanisms, it's about the opportunities, and it's about the assessment for me. And that's what really, to me, makes him a fascinating designer. Whether you're looking at something, uh, you know, like the Speicherstadt, or whether you're looking at Trajan or Luna or Strasbourg or, or whatever it happens to be, Stefan Feld is going to give you opportunities. And some people will say that that's point salad. Everything is valuable. You know, everything is the same. Well, no, not really. What makes it not the same is what everybody else at that table is doing and how you're going to read and react to that. So to me, Stefan Feld is, is a fascinating designer. I really appreciate and enjoy so many of his games. All the ones I've mentioned I have, I own. I don't ever plan on getting rid of them. These are games that I, I enjoy and they have a tremendous amount of replay value to them. Uh, you know, they, they don't ever really get old or stale. There's always something new that I can explore in a Stefan Feld title. And so that's why he is my number two. Number one. Well, this has been a long, wild ride, and I appreciate you sticking with me through it all as I ramble on and on about uh, my personal favorite designers. And uh, I hope that you found something interesting in this and something that uh, maybe actually will help you kind of uh, get to know me a little better. Uh, I certainly have my opinions on the show, but you know, often I, I kind of uh, let my guests guide the show, and I think that's a real strength of the show. Uh, I enjoy hearing everybody else's opinions, and they bring so much insight that I don't have. But, you know, this kind of gives you a little bit of a peek, perhaps, uh, into my kind of preferences. And I know that there's some names on this uh, list that might be surprising to people. And there's some omissions on this list, I think, that might be surprising to people. And some of that has to do with the fact that, you know, Joel and I are going to be talking about what we consider to be our up-and-coming designers, or the designers that are hitting their stride, like, right now, at least in, in my opinion, or his opinion. And so, you know, stay tuned, because some of those that you think, oh my gosh, I can't believe he didn't say so-and-so. Well, you might be hearing their name on that list when Joel and I get together. Uh, coming up uh, very soon uh, on Tuesday night, as a matter of fact, uh, for our live Google Hangout. So stay tuned then. So who's the number one designer? Well, if you haven't guessed it already, it's Martin Wallace. Martin Wallace is, is probably my favorite designer, and I don't know that that will ever really change. The reason for that is because Martin Wallace, for me, is not just a designer who designs deep and interesting strategic games. It's also because he's a designer that is able to capture a time and a place so well and who comes up with so many inventive and interesting kind of me uh, mechanisms and ideas in his game that I just absolutely have come to respect him and admire him and enjoy him as a designer. I'm thinking about games like Liberté. That might sound like a weird one to start off with, but try to bear with me. 
when you think about French history and you think about the time period of the revolution and the, the kind of major factions at work, the country was in such a state of flux, such a state of chaos, no one really kind of knew who was in charge, you know, during that whole period and the reign of terror. and Everything was hazy. Everything was kind of uncertain, unknown. And sure enough, with these simple little color-coded wooden blocks, you know, white blocks, red blocks, and blue blocks, Wallace was able to capture the fluidity of that time period, the terrible fluidity of it, the violence of it, the uncertainty of it, and capture it in this board game that in some ways feels extremely abstract because you're just kind of playing cards and placing out blocks, but in other ways, it's so incredibly thematic. It captures the feel of the period so incredibly well. And it's those kinds of ideas that, to me, make him such a compelling designer. Of course, we can talk about brass. Uh, any, any game that has a Birkenhead virtual link, you, you got to know. That's tied to a time and a place. We're talking about pasties and tinner's trail. We're, we're talking about pumping water out of the tin mines in Cornwall in that same game. All of these kind of attention to details, these interesting historical stories, these interesting facts, these, these periods of history. As a person who loves history, this is what drives my fascination with him. When I, I think about games like Struggle of Empires, and I think about the colonial period, and I think about the, the alliances that were made and broken, these kind of marriages of convenience, the way one country would play another country off against yet another country, and uh, the, the you know, enemy of my enemy is my friend, and all of this kind of really feels right when you play his games. They actually kind of work. I think about a game like A Few Acres of Snow, if that game doesn't capture the nature of trying to fight a conflict in a wilderness, in a vast expanse, uh, we're looking at a, a portion of North America that is so vast, so wide, so long, that it, it's almost impossible to try to plan things and coordinate things and, and get people from point A to point B in a timely fashion. It's just too big. There's just too many variables. There's too many things that could go wrong. And, you know, that game captures that perfectly. The frustration of trying to manage your resources, of trying to coordinate your plans, of trying to coordinate your resources, of, of trying to get things done. It becomes increasingly difficult as things progress in that game. And that's exactly what happened historically. And so being able to take those ideas, which are not the kind of ideas you would typically think of, and incorporate them into a game design to make it feel right is what makes him an incredible designer, in my opinion. I think about the game A Study in Emerald. You know, that's a weird game. That is a that is a weird and wonderful game. I, I don't know how it works. I don't really know why it works. I don't care about Cthulhu at all, but I love that game. Um, it, it feels like exactly what 
it, it is. You know, you got these restorationists and and you've got these loyalists and you know the 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 struggle, the back and forth, the sort of anarchist movement that he was trying to capture um, from our own you know real time period in history and 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 reflect it on this board game with this different theme. Uh, Sherlock Holmes meets Cthulhu from from Neil uh, Gaiman's story. I think I'm saying that correctly, Gaiman or Gaiman. Um, wonderful, wonderful stuff and. The, the game just works despite itself. I don't know how it works. I don't know why it works. Then all of a sudden you throw in zombies and vampires. You're like, what is this? This is like a hot mess. But when you play it, it works. Um, I know there's people who would disagree with me, but I, I think if you play it a few times and you play it with a, a, a good complement of players, um, you, you know, not, not playing it as a two or three player game, um, I think you're going to find that it does work. And it does tell an interesting story. Uh, there are so many games of his that I just absolutely love. I mean, uh, games like Steel Driver. What an overlooked game. It's a wonderful game. It is a, a fantastic... That and Airlines Europe. Steel Driver and Airlines Europe are, I think, two of the best games to try to use to introduce people to the whole notion of a stock game. Uh, they both do such a wonderful job of kind of streamlining that process and making you understand that, you know, I'm not yellow. I'm just invested in yellow because I'm also invested in black and I'm also invested in red. You know, all of these kind of notions in, in gaming terms that we try to kind of communicate to people who are new to the hobby can be done so well with Steel Driver. I mean, it, it, it's, a, it's a great game and it plays very quickly. And it has a wonderful end game tension as you finally start to realize that these networks that you've built, if you haven't been boxed in, these networks that you've built, these companies that you've invested in, it's all going to come down to this mass delivery system at the end, right? And who's going to be able to deliver what? And who's going to get to choose first? And, you know, all of these things make for a, a game that's actually quite compelling. Um, I think about a game like Steam, you know, a, a wonderful kind of, of game where you have to balance your need for income versus your desire to win the game. And if you worry too much about winning the game, you're going to have no income and you're going to be unable to win the game. If you worry too much about your victory points and trying to win the game that way, you're going to have no economy and you're not going to be able to win. You know, you have to pay attention to both things. Everything about so many of the games that he's designed, I think about uh, another hot mess game of his, um, which, which is a, a wonderful game uh, that he designed uh, that highlights the history of Poland and God's Playground. You know, this this is telling the story of what it must be like to be Poland, beset upon all sides by everyone trying to come in and destroy you. You know, what what must that be like? How How would you manage that? How would you manage to keep... You know, your estates, your lands, your holdings. Um, how would you manage to do that in the face of relentless outside pressure of people who want to do you harm? Uh, it, it captures that feel. And it also captures the feel of the betrayal when someone doesn't help you, you know? When one of the other players, you know, representing these powerful families, these noble families in Poland, turns their back on Poland. You know, how can you do that? And, and, and the anger and <laughs> the kind of, you know, finger pointing that happens at those crucial moments when someone turns away. What an amazing experience. Incredibly difficult to learn. Rule book, you know, rule books, let's face it, and, and, and Martin Wallace is not exactly his strong suit, but 
boy, oh boy, the gameplay shines through enough that I'm willing to do the work to sometimes figure out exactly how some of these things are supposed to occur. Um, some of his war games like Gettysburg and Waterloo, I never had the chance to play Waterloo, but Gettysburg, I, I, I found that game fascinating. I mean, instead of this point-to-point movement, we kind of have this area movement, you know, where, where the map is, is divided up into these sort of seemingly bizarre shapes, these weird geometric shapes. But actually, when you look at the kind of topography of the Gettysburg region, it all starts to make a little bit of sense. And so, again, you have this, this really interesting kind of connection to time and place that I really appreciate about so many of his games. And so whether you're looking at a, uh, you know, a, a straight train game like Steam or you know, uh, Steel Driver, whether you're looking at one of his kind of historic games like Tinner's Trail, um, whether you're looking at like a game of his like uh, uh, Mordred, which to me is like one of his great little family games. Uh, my kids uh, grew up playing Mordred and loved the theme and the dice chucking in that one. I mean, that, that's just a super fun kind of a game and very difficult to get uh, and lay your hands on, but again, had some really interesting ideas in this kind of more this pressure of Mordred coming in from all sides and and can you hold him off long enough to win? Um, it's just so many interesting designs. It really kind of captures the feel. And that's why Martin Wallace connects with me because I, I get that connection between the theme, the the time and the place that he's trying to convey, and then it's it's captured in the gameplay. Whether it's automobile or age of industry, it doesn't really matter. The uh, the guy really connects with me many 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 times. I really appreciate his games. Uh, I know some people have said he's been on a bit of a downward trend recently, but I, you know I don't know. I, I think. I think he's been trying different things. I think he started with a few acres of snow and is is kind of looking at some different directions, moving into some more family fare. Does that mean that he's kind of losing his touch or something? I don't necessarily know that that's the case. Uh, Discworld was actually quite a fun game. I mean, I, I enjoyed playing that, and I had never read a single Terry Pratchett novel. So... I really, you know, I don't know that he's losing his time. I think he just might be moving in a little bit of a different direction. Uh, there are some games of his that are kind of head scratchers for me, um, you know, that, that have been more recent. But when I look at the body of work, when you look at the, the guy that, that made a game like Princes of the Renaissance and After the Flood and, and others that I haven't even mentioned, this is a designer that I truly respect, truly enjoy, and who's given me a lot of pleasure. And so that's why Martin Wallace is my number one designer. Well, that's about all the time we have for this special episode of The Long View. I want to thank everybody for going on this little journey with me. I want to thank Joel Eddy for uh, uh, encouraging me to put out this top ten list, and uh, hopefully some people found it interesting. Um, And I appreciate uh, uh, you coming along with me tonight. And I look forward to talking to people when Joel and I do the live Google Hangout on Tuesday night. So stay tuned. We'll post some notices when that show's about to go live, and uh, we'll We'll get a chance to chat perhaps with some of you as we look at some top 10 up-and-coming designers. So uh, I want to say thanks again to everybody out there for listening. Uh, Thanks, of course, as always, to my sponsor, Gamesurplus.com. You can find many of these titles uh, at Gamesurplus.com. And, of course, I want to say thank you to the Dice Tower Network as well. Thanks for listening, and have a great night.